Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. With a with the clap. Well, hold on. Did you just clap three times before you clapped? Do that again. <laughs> it's a pre-echo. Anyway, welcome to episode 80-something of the Carmudgeon Show. I am Derek Tam hyphen Scott, and this is one Jason Camisa. Juan Jason Camisa? Juan? I'm suddenly Mexican. Juan Manuel Juanjo. No, one. O-N-E, not J-U-A-N. This might be episode 80-something, but it's actually episode 129. Yes. Now for something completely different, we're going to talk about vintage Mercedes Benzes, specifically the R129, the Which best is, SL after the original. I was going to say this is this is an absolute high point for Mercedes Benz, and whether you think you want a 129 or, or not, you should listen to this because it represents a fascinating arc. Yes, about and it's particularly the historical contextualization of why this car existed when it did and why it is so good. Anyone so, who uses the word historical contextualization in a in a conversation with a friend. It's probably someone you should listen to. Uh, anyway, uh, be sure and fire up your Craigslist machine so that you can begin your R129 search. But first, listen to this episode of The Carmudgeon Show, part of the Haggerty Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 129. <laughs> can we do that? We should start at uh, 1.29 p.m. Uh, we're going to wait, sit here and wait. No, 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 no. Okay. We're going to make everybody sit and watch us for 45 <laughs> minutes. With just that, like, the waiting room music playing on. Uh, that legendary song. Uh, there's a song that was originally recorded and then now is widely used as hold music. And some guy just like made it and then by happenstance put it into the public like domain. And that, and then it was, I forget, there's, there's a, it's called something Opus and there's a Wikipedia article about it. Go check huh. it out. Uh, is that, that the one that they were using like shows like Drawn Together when they're like, they're in a, like a chase scene and then Captain Hero just gets on a, on a conveyor belt and stops. And it's like, it takes 45 minutes for him to go like. Elevator music. And then, anyway. All right, so today's topic is the Mercedes-Benz R129 SL. Yes, Predictably, we are talking about old Mercedes Benzes, but I think it's interesting. I mean, this this is a car I that mean, made obviously it. we think it's interesting. That's why we always talk about these cars. But it's not all about us, Derek Tam, Mike, and Scott. No, I quite this, agree. And there are periodically, I mean, it's split. But some people are like stop talking about damn old Mercedes Benzes. Other people are like more discussion of old Mercedes Benzes. This was a car that was in Haggerty's UK bull market. Uh, was it? Uh, was it ever in the US one? Has it ever been in the US one? Sorry, I should ask questions that I know the answer to rather than just saying words. Or questions that I know the answer to <laughs> that don't embarrass me in front of my boss. I don't know. Uh, well, but it if it be. hasn't been, it should have been. I mean, I have long felt that these cars are undervalued, uh, which is yeah. why I keep buying them. Um, okay, so to back up, the lineage of the SL is quite interesting because it's fucked up. Yes, SL. we have done a full SL episode. You will recall early on, we did, had this discussion. And Back in the days when I sang. Yes, and we skipped the R230 completely, which offended some people. Well, it was funny because I did an episode in, at Motor Trend on the SL, and we skipped the R230 completely. On purpose? One wasn't available, and I'm like, who cares? No one gives uh, a shit. Those cars are starting to get interesting, so let us have a brief aside on the R230. No. The early ones are garbage. Well, they're not yeah, garbage. They're garbage. problem problem prone. Really? They're not garbage? Have you touched the steering wheel controls or window switches? Yeah, or like, yeah I mean, it's just not Dodge, as nice. It's a Dodge Neon. It's not as nice, that's <sighs> for sure. But there are people who are enthusiastic about them, just like people are emerging out of the woodwork who are enthusiastic about uh, W220s 220s, yeah. or whatever. But apparently the late uh, 129s are great. Uh, sorry, great Two th two th late 230s are great. Do you smile? Um, can you smile? Can you hold your arms out? Are you having a stroke? <laughs> Only with one side. <laughs> uh, Not funny. And the, uh, so, you know, you want like an SL, a late SL63 with the P30 package and all the options and stuff. And those are still quite valuable. Okay. Anyway, we have now discussed the R230 mm -hmm. on the Curmudgeon Show for an entire, I don't know, 63 Too seconds. Too long. Back to the 129. Okay, <laughs> okay. so the, the lineage of the SL is interesting because SL, of course, stands for Superleicht. This was proven, yes. not Sportleicht. Mm -hmm. um, Superleicht, and that was super light in German, and that was given to the W198. 198 300 SL Gullwing. I.e. the Gullwing. Which was not actually super light, and certainly they have not been super light since. Yeah, Those cars are heavier than you'd expect. Heavier than you expect, but I th if I remember the the the, it was a space frame chassis, and it yes, was which means it's a bunch of tubes welded, that are all welded to each to other. A high point in the engine compartment, so cool. Yes. Um, but that was it was a race car. It was one of the very few cars that we discussed a previous episode, possibly last episode, 
yes. um, that started out as a race car and that was turned into a road car. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. That was the end. Of the lineage. No, the, the yes. uh, SLS. The SLS is probably the most direct successor of the W198. Yes. So we have the original SL sports car lineage that went 300 SL, W198, to... 1952, if you include the race cars, to 1963, which is the last of the 300 SL roadsters. And then we had nobody home for many, many, many decades. Yep. And then SLS, which became... Uh, AMG GT. AMG GT. Wasn't there... There was the SLR. S- SLR, if you wanna, yeah. But the SLR is less sporting in intent than the SLS. Yeah, but even that wasn't all that. Anyway, so you have that lineage of cars. And then you have the SL, which, which was started really with the Pagoda, right? You could perhaps say the 190 SL conceptually is actually pretty similar. Yeah, fair enough. The 190 SL was intended to have the looks of the 300 SL at a more accessible price point, which is reflected by the fact that they sold a lot more of them. They were a lot less money. Uh, but it sort of did this thing, which Mercedes SLs have a great tradition of doing, which is looking really cool and promising a lot, but driving a lot like the sedans from which they are heavily derived. Right. Uh, and that is true of Pagodas. That is true of the next generation, which is the 107. You would know that car if you're not a Mercedes nerd as a 560 SL or a 450 SL. Or 380. Or yes. 280. Yeah, but not here in the or United 500. States, mm-hmm. and not here in the United States. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyone who knows all of that yeah. is going to know yeah. the R-107. designation R one hundred and seven. R one hundred seven lasted twenty one model years in the US. I think nineteen seventy two, probably or seventy three is where well, it started. Yeah, so seventy one production until yes eighty nine. Eighty nine was the last yeah. year. Um, pretty uh, very long life, and that wasn't on purpose. Actually, right, uh, it was not supposed to be that long of a life. And the final update, which got it the 560 in the U.S., and there was a bit of a facelift. Model um, year 86 was model year 86, and that happened because all of Mercedes' development resources were deployed for the new fuel-efficient small cars to meet CAFE. So yes. Mercedes' interim solution, when the fuel economy standards came in for the U.S., was to put diesels in everything. That was mm-hmm. an interim solution. And so that's why, if you go to model year, call it I don't know 1981 for example uh, every car that you buy effectively is predominantly diesel and they're trying to sell mostly diesels so that means the three the 123 which is the e-class basically mm-hmm. uh 300d is the primary variant in mm-hmm. fact the wagon only came here as a 300d you could get the 240 the 300 and then early on for the 123 you could get the 280e and the 230 which were uh, four and six, four and six gasoline gas. engines, yeah. but they were basically phased out by the 80s because those were their most voluminous sales cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in order to get their average fuel economy up, fleet average fuel economy up, they just put diesels and everything, mm-hmm. uh, except for the SL. And then the S class was also pushed in that direction mm-hmm. starting in 78, 79, the first 300, tur- the turbo first diesel. world's first turbocharged production diesel for a passenger car. Yes, although the Peugeot 604 was very close. That's like French. within a year, but it's French. Yes. Um, yes. So the so what happened was the one oh seven got a bunch of mm-hmm. updates. It got galvanized steel at some point. I think that was I don't remember what year it was. I haven't thought about this in years. But at some the early cars rust. The late cars rust far less because they were galvanized. Um, and that model year was extended because of this development that was generation that model generation. I'm so, I'm sorry, you said yes, model yeah, year. Yeah. I haven't had. I, you haven't I had, had one cup of coffee. Uh. Um, the, uh, yes, the generation was extended because all d- uh, engineering resources were deployed for W201 and M102. So if you think W and M201, yes. 102, that is the uh, 190E. chassis and engine and also the W124. Which grew out of that. And mm-hmm. so those were concessions for uh, fuel economy. Um, and so there were no resources. Uh, it's very Spare. interesting to look at the 129 and realize that as an SL is the flagship of the Mercedes lineup. And yet it was the last to debut with that new design language done by Bruno Sacco. Right. And this is is something that marks habitually do is that if they're going to do something really outlandish, they're going to start at the top of the model range and move it down. And so that's why if you think about every time there's a generation shift with say BMW, it starts with the seven series. Or should. The E32 and then the E34, just like uh, E38 came before E39. Um, and and then E46 was that three series of that same design language, right? right. So the idea so is it, it trickles down market, right? So you're looking at this car and saying, "Wow, this this less expensive car looks and reminds me of the more expensive car." Mm-hmm. And the opposite happened at Mercedes. The 126 was the first sort of Bruno Sacco design ish, but it wasn't fully committed. And the, logically, the SL incorporating that should have followed. 
shortly thereafter, but the 126 came out in 1980, and the 129 came out in 19... I think 82. it debuted at 89 in Geneva. If oh, I 129, correctly. yeah, sorry, yeah. But the 201 was the first, wound up being the first fully Bruno Sacco designed car in that new wedge-shaped trapezoidal rear section mm-hmm. uh, design language, and that was because of fuel economy. And what happened was... It started out with the least expensive car, the 201, the 190E, then trickled up in the wrong direction to the W201, uh, W124, which was the midsize car, then trickled up to the, e to the W140, or no, I guess a 129 was first, Yes, and then right. W140. Correct. But either way, it was backwards, right? It started yes. the cheap car. Um, and, and that, that was out of necessity. It was out of regulatory f- force, basically, yeah. that that occurred, which is yeah. atypical. And the interesting thing about that is when you read stuff by Bruno Sacco that he memoirs and, and whatnot, he has said, and he's still alive, I would love to meet him. I would, I would get There's on my knees. There's a fabulous book about him, by the way. Uh, there is? Which I recommend, yes. Uh, I should probably read that. Yes. We should have probably done our homework before this Yeah, episode. we did absolutely yep. no research. Yep. We should have. We talked we about, we talked for 30 seconds before we hit record about that. We both have really good books on the 129. And have not read them recently I, or maybe uh, at all. I, mine was years ago. Um, but Sacco, Sacco feels that 129 was the best he used resolved. the word perfect. Yeah, it was he the does best. use the word perfect when he describes the 129. I would almost design. agree with him. I think it's spectacular. I, I think, think it's, it's stunning. Uh, and it suffers. But you, well, you know why? Why it was perfect and why he thought it was the best resolved car of all of those, that body language. It's because it sat for almost 10 years. That mm, car was supposed right. to debut before the 201 and it was designed before the 201. Um, and it had to be put on the back burner. And you can see in the books, which I'm not going to go and get a million inserts of, you guys can buy the books, the sketches of how it evolved from 1978, I think when the original sketches of that car were done, until 1988 when it finally went, or 87 or so, when it finally got locked in. He had had the ability to look at that design for 10 years and iterate and iterate and iterate and refine all of the things that he didn't get right on 201 and and 124. Mm-hmm. Very few things, if you ask me. Those cars are almost also perfect. Yeah. Um, well, and also you're doing the same language on a different package, which gives you some flexibility with right. proportions and some ability to, for example, uh, make the rear windscreen more um, raked because you don't have to package backseat occupants' heads. Right. I mean, there are supposed to be backseats in the 129, but they're vestigial right. more than anything else. Vestigial. When was the last time you used that word in a sentence? Not you, anyone on planet Earth. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, you were saying there was something about the design. Oh, I was actually going to go in a slightly different direction, which mm. is that the car, I think, is underappreciated for a number of reasons, which is that they are still wildly cheap. They're wildly inexpensive. They sold quite well, especially for how expensive they were. Uh, the Do you know that initially in the U.S. there was fifty to one hundred thousand dollar markup on those cars, and they were hundred thousand dollar cars. They were ninety two base, ninety one for the V 8s Depends like on the model year. So I, um, in my relentless pursuit of knowledge, Lexus. bought price <laughs> as perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, bought price uh, cards for the North American market for nineteen eighty nine. Sorry, nineteen ninety four and ninety five. Mm-hmm. And there was a $10,000 price drop on the SL500 between 94 and 95 right. as the Deutschmark, uh, I guess, weakened. Weakened. Uh, or strengthened. Yeah. I um, don't understand how that works. Um, but okay. yes, it, yeah. the, so they, the cars were incredibly hot. And, and it's so interesting when you watch, again, John Davis reading like his review of the car when it first came out, the SL500, because he makes this sort of like prophetic, it's, well, I don't know, maybe it's not prophetic because it hasn't come true, but he says this is a future classic. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's taken a long time. I think the cars are headed in that direction. They certainly deserve it. In my opinion, it is the best SL after the W198. After the I mean, look, SL. we talk about how some cars are on the market for a really, really long time, right? Now, you know, the one that everyone keeps talking about is the... Is the uh, GTR. T- well, GTR is 10 years old. No, long older than that. It's like 14. GTR and Tesla Model S, those are really old cars. That SL was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And so you have the typical... Other people did stuff like this back then. It was a different time, like XJS. Yeah, okay, but hold on. But no, 928. <laughs> 928 was just a you know failure from start to finish. But the, that SL went so long. Think about the average age of a, of a 107 buyer, R107 buyer. They didn't make 140. it. Right. They were dead by the time the 129 came out. So there was a decade of pent up demand of people who were like, I am about to kick it. 
I've been waiting to buy a new fucking SL and I had a 350 and then a 450 and then a 380 and then a 560. I just want a new body style SL. I'm rich, I'm old, I'm dying, I need something. And of course they were gonna pay $100,000 over. It was also, the, there was an eight, there was uh, a huge car market bubble in 1989. Yep. Massive, bigger than anything that's happened since, especially because the collapse was so precipitous. And so Testarossa's, which you know, our $120,000 MSRP cars were selling for $300,000. Mm -hmm. um, 275 GTBs were $800,000 when they had been 150, you know, a year or two before. And then they went back to like yeah. 200. It was, it was a big bubble in 89. So you have this and so this car of, got swept up in that mm -hmm. uh, and led to these, these big markups. But, you know, my big markups and huge sales numbers. Huge. Yes. Yeah. And my first SL... Uh, no, this car was not a car I bought. It was a car I looked up at did not buy. Uh, it was sold in 91 uh, as a used car, and it sold for MSRP, uh, even though it was a used car, because it was a reflection of that era uh, for those cars. So uh, we've talked about them being great. We haven't offered too much specificity other than to say that the design is great. Um, <clears throat> so there, let's talk about variants for a second. So in the U.S., the first to go on sale was a was the SL3. Uh, 300 SL, actually, I think it acted. Did it predate? The I think 500 it predated SL? the 500. But the first two models were 300 SL, which was and 500 SL. And 500 SL. The 300 SL was a all new, 24 valve straight six. All new from the pistons up. Okay, a new new variant of an existing straight six called an M104. That's the twin cam version. That's twin yes. cam. Um, they were all the 300 SLs were all twin cam. In the um, U.S. In the U.S. There was a 12-valve version. There were plenty the of other. There was 280s. There was all kinds of other stuff. But in the U.S., we got 300SL, which is a 24-valve. That was badge 300SL-24. hyphen In like Europe. In Europe. But not here. Here, it was just called a 300SL. And it was a five-speed automatic. And one of the world's first five-speed. I think it was the Maybe first. Maybe the first. Five-speed electronically controlled automatic. Mm -hmm. The 500. Or you could get it with a five-speed manual. Yes. I haven't gotten there yet. The um, or and by the way, if while we're there, it's not just a five speed; it's a dog leg five Correct. speed transmission. According to Mercedes, they sold one hundred and sixty six of them in the U S. Uh, there's all kinds I think of, the numbers are not probably higher. I, they didn't know. I mean, I literally so I had a, a three hundred SL five speed, and I called Mercedes historian, and she told me that I my car was gray market, and I'm like, that's kind of funny because I have the original window sticker, and she's like, we didn't sell a manual. 129 here i'm like yes you did send her the original window sticker and she's like Get the fuck out and came back a couple days later with a we sold 166 of them uh we think that's the correct number but in any case it's fewer than 200 is what i was told i've heard all kinds of different numbers um that was an interesting car uh that was a that straight six had variable valve timing on the intake cam and bosch cis so it was an old cagetronic yeah. fuel injection from the 1960s 70s uh with variable valve timing Right, seven and the horsepower goes from 100, is the, the single cam version is the M103 that has 177 horsepower in US trim. Hor no change in displacement, power goes to, what is it, 217 or something like that, yeah. 220, uh, just by adding four valve heads. 228 PS, whatever it was, yeah. Huge power bump. And, and you get a 40 horsepower change by cha putting a four, which is, I suppose, typical. Typical. To put but 7,000 RPM, mm -hmm. right? 7,000 RPM, you know, so to, when you think of a, a 24 valve, three liter or you know three point something liter straight six that revs to seven grand your mind goes to m not yeah. mercedes or bmw uh, uh, toyota 2jz 2jz yeah fair enough um and, but of course the star car and so i found one of those cars m104 is great and all that but the star was the 500 sl um mm -hmm. So this car had an all-new engine, not all-new. <laughs> yeah, don't same, pull, don't same pull that same new, shit. <laughs> same level of all-new as the M104, which is to say that they just put a four-valve head uh, heads on mm -hmm. the car uh, and an engine that had been around since the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, so, But this was an all-aluminum block version of that 70s engine, right, mm -hmm. which came out technically earlier. Uh, this was the M119. Mm -hmm. God, we're nerds. Uh, so this was a five liter. This is basic Mercedes stuff. This is basic Mercedes stuff. But that, it was a five liter V8 version of basically that three liter straight six, right? Same head design, same cam design. So it had variable valve timing on, on the, the intake, intake side. Uh, four cams, 32, I can't do this math, 32 valves, valves. <laughs> 302 horsepower? Nope, that's the M113's output. Oh God, I can't That's remember. also the C43's. It's... So it's uh, a lot. It's 326 PS, 322 horsepower in the U.S. market with CIS. Okay. 
Um, thank you for that. That would be model years 1990 to 92. That had a four-speed automatic. Correct. Um, 722. And if you drive one of these early four-speed cars um, with a one M119 in it, you will actually curse out loud when you floor it. They're really fast. But you won't be able to hear it because if it's if you're really getting an early car that doesn't have ASR, then you're going to get just a lot of tire screeching. Which is fun. Yes, in a, you it's know, pretty In an old man Mercedes, yeah. Yes. Um, I love that engine. I yeah. absolutely adore that. The sound, the power delivery. It's one of these like wakes up right right off the line, huge Good torque. torque. Yep. And then at four thousand does the cam change. Mm-hmm. And then has this build of torque and a surge towards its I think it only revs to what, sixty five hundred? Yeah, it's definitely lower than the 104. It's six or 60, 64 or something. something like that. But it pulls like a motherfucker up top. So, you know, it's that great that you know that naturally aspirated power delivery that i live for which is like wow okay oh oh my oh my god oh jesus christ and then it shifts and it does it again love that engine yeah um that was a how many year only engine that was only ever in the sl with cis Mm -hmm. 90 to 92 two right so that was three model years only Mm -hmm. uh that was what they called the long block so that was a tall Tall or tall block right so it was a the 90 Three model year that switched to the short deck mm-hmm. um, 500, With which was the LH. engine, which the engine that went into the 500E. One year earlier in the yeah. 500E. So in 92, this engine was available in the 500E. And then for 93, they were like, okay, we're going to put it in the SL mm-hmm. as well. And so this was the same bore and stroke, just different rod length. So that mm-hmm. brought the deck down. Uh, that needed to be the case. It needs to be done that way for uh, to fit under the W124 hood. Um, and then they put LH fuel injection in it, which mm-hmm. is a hot air uh, mass airflow sensor. It is contemporary fuel injection instead mm-hmm. of mechanical fuel injection that is right. from the 70s with electronic control added on, mm-hmm. which we had the pleasure of spending probably 12 full hours with when I bought my first SL trying oh, to CIS, get it to yeah. idle correctly. Yeah. Yep. So um, I'm a big fan of getting a 93 or later with the LH so you don't have to deal with the CIS. It, yeah. The other thing that it really does change is you probably get a 25% improvement in fuel economy. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're buying an SL, you don't really care about fuel economy. But with CIS, the fuel that thing gets like 11 to 13 miles a gallon. It is so thirsty that even with a huge fuel tank, you're just like, man, I have to buy gas constantly. And so it's the unluxurious thing of buying gas frequently, even with a, I don't know, it's maybe an 85 liter tank or something. It's more than 20 gallons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you still are buying fuel so frequently. It's like, you know, you get 200 mile, 220 mile range with CIS. So I'm a pr- I am prefer LH because it's less of a pain to deal with and you get more useful cruising range. Mm-hmm. That's That to me is really interesting that you get that much of a difference because in other applications from other manufacturers, CIS actually delivers really good fuel economy, but for whatever reason, a Mercedes, it never does. Um, but there's an interesting, there's a lot of transition in 129 because, all right, so you start out with a with a one fuel injection and then you transition to a different fuel injection and a different physical block, and rods and, you know, and, and rotating. So here's in. And then. 93. Well, and then there's another change between 93 and 94. So. Well, other than the badge, right? Because the badge for 94 went to SL500. Instead of 500 SL. Mm-hmm. And you lost the underline. And that was part of an entire rationalization of Mercedes model lines. Everything was number, then followed by letters. And the whole origin of this is the fact that there was a 190E, 2.6, and a 300E, which they called a 260E with the same engine. Mm-hmm. And these, the designation didn't wasn't rational. It wasn't logical. Right. And so the whole arrival of the C-Class was oriented towards trying to make it more like rational, sensible, like BMW does. It made, it made perfect sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. So the SL, they just moved the SL to the beginning. They lost the underline on the badge. The other change for two other changes between 93 and 94, do you know what they are? Was it 94 went to the five speed? Nope. That was a 96. Shit. Uh, it's going to be like something ridiculously small, like door panels or something. Yes. They went from perforated door panels to the gathered leather between 93 and 94. Okay. Uh, there's one other change. It's the also stereo? inside the car. Yes, the yeah. radio. They went ah. from the Becker 1432 to the Becker 1492. You are such a fucking um, nerd. Well, it has the twisty <laughs> knob for the radio for the volume, which because everyone would always complain about the Becker and how hard it was to use because it has all these identical mm-hmm. buttons. Although it does have the very useful star button if you have a Becker in your car. One of these Grand Prix, you hit star, and then the, the numbers on the, the that dials your radio station in, so you don't have to seek for radio stations. Yep. Star nine eight seven puts yes, you to ninety eight point seven, and that Just, was the same until after two twenty. I oh, think, really? yeah, even oh. two twenty one had 
it had a little flip up keypad and you'd hit star one zero zero three and you're at 100.3 but now that no one listens to radio anymore what's fm yes um, okay so that was the change between 93 94 other 94 95 are identical except for they changed the t- front turn signal lenses from amber to clear in the with US, an amber insert with on an the US amber car. reflector in the u.s yeah. And in the rear, they all, all the U.S. cars have a red reflector insert. Yes. Which is true. And then shit got funky. In 96. In 96. 96 model year. So 96 model year had a facelift, mm-hmm. which was, which changed. Inside and out. Changed the taillights from three mm-hmm. ribs to two. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know that I knew that. The taillights from, were, had the sort of hard-edged ribs that were they there changed, for the fun. Yeah, and then they changed. No, those were 99. Scalped. The scalped ones arrived in 99. They did? Yes. Okay, so I know th- I I thought that was a change. The other one is the side strakes went from yes three to two, three and to they're two. soft and squishy, exactly. and the whole the lower cladding is reshaped. The bumpers yep. are reshaped. Exactly. The fog lights are shaped differently. But I thought that was a taillight update for '96. They changed the taillights to be more, less amber and more red, but they still have the ridges, and the ridges disappeared after the '98 mm-hmm. model wow. year. Okay, I At knew the there were three time, different taillights. Yes. But the this big is change. So interesting. Well, then the interior went from absolutely wonderful to complete shit. Yes. So I'm sorry to say this. Bruno Sacco's original design, inside and out, was clean and purposeful and Italian and wonderful. And just sort of crisp. Right. It lost the crispness. It went blobby the way everything else went blobby in the 90s. It got that horrible steering wheel. It got ugly seats. It got ugly door panels. It got crappy HVAC buttons that instead of a a perfectly, every time you touch them, would like sploosh in and they're just, yeah. Big quality reduction, and this was the Daimler Chrysler era, the beginning of the Daimler Chrysler era, yes. where everything cost was cutting cost because cutting. Lexus had come in and was like, "Oh, by the way, here's a product for forty thousand dollars." You know, the SC, and everyone's standing around looking at SLs for a hundred thousand dollars or ninety thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Sorry, after ninety four, mm-hmm. uh, for the SL five hundred. Interestingly, the price did not change between ninety four ninety five for the six hundred. Uh, but we haven't f- got to the 600. We have not gotten to the f- 600. And we are going out of order, so we should go back. Let's return to the 600. Or do you want to go finish the evolution? Sure, we can go to, well, okay. Well, we can go to, We can go back to the 600. So, because 600 was a V12. Mm-hmm. Um, the 600 was not originally part of the product lineup. I don't know if you yes. know this. It didn't appear till 92. Uh, it wasn't even planned in the original Well, yes, you can line. tell that by the fact that they had to lengthen the, the car in order to fit the engine. Yep. They also had to do something else. When, they, when the car was finalized and in its final engineering... BMW came out with their V12, or they found out that BMW was about to come out with their, their, hold on, what's that engine called? I can't think of what that engine Um, code is. M70? M70. M70. Wow, that took a lot of digging. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, So the BMW was about to come out with their M70, and you know the way the German car industry works. They're all looking at each other and chasing each other's tails, and Mercedes is saying this, no phase that BMW will come out with this engine, and we won't have a V12. So at the last second, they had to start the engineering process for the 12. And the first thing they did was increase the diameter of the overall, the overall, the OD, overall diameter of the wheel and tire package to be able to fit brakes large enough to slow down a V12 car from its max speed. This is now before they'd agreed on the, on the 156 mile an hour top speed gentleman's agreement thing. And so they had to go back and fundamentally re-engineer the entire car around this larger wheel package at the 11th hour in 1987 or 88, because they found out that BMW was coming out with the V12. Um, what they didn't do is re- be able to fit the fucking engine in until after it was already in production. And then so the- and that's why the V12 variant was late to arrive. It yeah. was two model years later. And it was, I mean, it's a substantial difference. The crazy thing to me is that the V12 is the same length as the straight six was. If you think of it, mm-hmm. you know, it's just wider. But with the cooling, it, package. cooling package was so large that it has a different hood, different bumper. Is it I don't know hood? if the hood, hood is, is different, different, but the bumper is definitely. Right. And of course if you look at the car side by side, if now I can't unsee this, but when you look at an early V12 car, it has this like sort of underbite. Mm-hmm. Like we dog, both did like the same. Yeah. Like a pug. Yeah. Uh, and that's to fit all of the additional cool. junk in mm-hmm. there. Uh, and the other thing that Mercedes did with this 12-cylinder engine compared to BMW is that it's a dual overhead cam design and has more displacement. And so it, it makes uh, you know 389 horsepower instead of 326 horsepower mm-hmm. from BMW's V12, which incidentally is the same number of horsepower that Mercedes V8 makes. Mm-hmm. So it's Not a coincidence, I'm sure. Yeah, so this V12 was like that straight six and that V8. That was all done together. So you know, car yes. companies tend so to make a, dual a family. Cam design. Right. Does it have also intake uh, yeah. variable valve so timing? Car, so car, car companies will make a family of engines that's based on one combustion chamber. So they right. engineer one combustion chamber and then you put it in however many cylinders you want. So this was two of those straight sixes, two three liter straight sixes, make a six liter V12. Mm-hmm. They had a, a dual intake variable valve timing, but it did not use CIS. 
No. It did started out with LH Jetronic, which was the, you know a real fuel injection. Um, monster of a motor. Huge, huge, huge power. One of the greatest starter sounds in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, all like V12s. Yes, to be used in the S-Class, the W140, as well as mm-hmm. the Pagani Zonda. Mm-hmm. Has anyone else used that engine for anything? Probably. I don't know. Is no, those are the ones Dara? that I No. Somebody Maybe probably Dara did something. Um, yes. So this, the, but the, and the V12 also had a four-speed. Mm-hmm. The, okay, so now we're out to the 90. So that continued on. The 12 was no faster to 60 than the V8 was. It's like two tenths slower or something. Is no, it, it's, or it's faster. faster. Um, it's 6.0 versus like 6.2, 6.3. Their numbers, right? But Both the, tested by, as tested by um, Motor Week. Oh, I'm just using the oh. same testing regime. Yeah. I thought I thought car and driver had similar. They were within a tenth. Whatever, it's within the noise. But it, I want to start expanding to the quarter mile, and then you floor both of those cars at 100 miles an hour, and those six, those V12s, the 600s are genuinely staggeringly fast. And yes, that, it got also staggeringly heavy. Yes. So the 300 SL stick that I had was 30. I'm gonna have to look this up, but I feel like it was 3600 and something pounds. That's lighter than I would expect. Yeah, I think it was like 3628. It would be interesting to see if I remember correctly because I weighed it. I thought it would be more like 38. I could be wrong. I probably should look this up, but I'm not going to. Uh, the V12s were over 4,400. Yes. They were really heavy. And the V8s were... 4150. 4150. So it was quite a lot more weight. That's one of the reasons they were, weren't all that much quicker. Traction was an issue, obviously, when you're dealing with 400 horsepower. Um, uh, and so they continued, but we're back to now to the 96 six facelift? facelift. Or did we finish with that? Well, then there was an engine change again. That's for the 99 facelift. Okay. But we, if we neglected to oh, mention yeah. that in 96, they added the five-speed five transmission yep. to the non-six-cylinder cars. The interesting thing about the five-speed edition was it was not a revised gear set. So the car was exactly the same speed because all the fifth gear was was a longer cruising gear. So one through four were identical Which, having ratio. owned one of those cars, I understand because... Yeah, I mean, it's extra fuel economy and it's yeah. extra quiet without yeah. any change in acceleration. Exactly. I mean, I would have wished for shorter one through four just for more acceleration, but... It's just a, it's not a poorly chosen initial ratio, though, a set of ratios for the one through no. and the four-speed cars. They'll, they'll smoke the... I mean, if you're not careful, you can really incinerate the tires off the line. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you don't really want a shorter first. Yeah. Um, and this is using a 265 rear end in the SL500. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why the E500, which uses substantially the same mechanical content, is quite a bit faster uh, because they not only shorten the rear end ratio to 282 from 265, but they also, the, that car weighs 3850 instead of 4150. Right. So it's 300 pounds lighter and it has a shorter sure, rear end ratio. Yeah. And that's why the 500E is such a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, 99 uh, facelift. 99 facelift was a big one because that was where you really saw the cost cutting in the powertrain department. Mm. So it was another yeah, so interior. You lost the M104. And lost the four cam V8 in favor of a two cam V8. So yes. double overhead cam to single overhead cam. Yeah. Four valves per cylinder to three valves per cylinder. Yep. The only thing this that got the better. M113. The only thing that got better was it got twice as many spark plugs. Yeah. Because it needed that to pass emissions tests. Brilliant. That's not what you want to hear from a Mercedes Benz. Mm-hmm. So we sort of all blasted it. In time, though, the M113 has really aged well because they're really reliable. Yeah, they're very durable. They're not very complex. They last well. But to be fair, 119s also do that. Yeah. I mean, 119s, the early ones have the CIS, though, which is you know inherently pro- problematic because they're yeah. not computer controlled and you can't talk to them. They also consume a fair amount of ignition components and they're pretty expensive ignition components. You just Those cars are very sensitive to the ignition system. Yeah. You just need to have good caps and rotors and the insulators behind the them. The spark arrestor behind them, which yes. everyone leaves out and then wants, wants to know yeah, where the car's Yeah, and then the car starts running yeah. garbage. But yeah, yeah, there's an insulator cap behind it. So if you're in there, do one of those. Just do it right. God, nobody will care about this except no. for people who are avid Mercedes owners. But no. those of you who are... But the interesting thing is that it, an SL500 and an SL500 were not the same car. They yes. were, again, one is a variable valve timing, four cam 32 valve V8, and the other one is a that non-variable was, by valve by the way... Timing derived from a Le Mans race car. We left that bit out, but that's why that engine was developed in that way. The 117 was the two cam version that was used in the 420 SEL and the 560 SEL and every other damn Mercedes V8 in the 80s. Uh, And they went to Le Mans racing and they needed a turbocharged quad cam 32 valve engine to make 900 horsepower to go around the mall. And they won an 89 with that car, the Sauber C9. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, all they all they really did was pull off the turbos, mm-hmm. and voila, you have the 500 street engine, yep. which is pretty amazing. Yeah, especially for a car of that genre. You know, normally you would read about that happening with some kind of something like a Ferrari or something mm-hmm. like that. But for Mercedes to do that, I think is particularly yeah, pretty charming. Neat. Pretty neat. So the the 12-cylinder did not get any of this cost cutting, by the way. The 12-cylinder engine, the M120 It, it did later, uh, not in the 129. In the 129, right. correct. They So they, they through the end of the 129's production in 02, they, they always use the same 12-cylinder. Mm-hmm. And so if I were to ha- insist, if I were forced to get a late R129, I would be Forest, like, oh, gunpoint. I would be like, mm, maybe I got to get the V12 in that case. Ordinarily, I would not choose the V12. Here's the thing. V12. That 119 is quick. And probably... 113 or 119? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, 113. The, the three-valve engine. Three-valve engine is quick and reliable and mm-hmm. efficient and all of that other stuff. Uh, it makes about the same horsepower. That's right? the one that makes 302 horsepower. 302, so it lost right. 15 or right. so. And I think it gained a tiny little bit of torque peak. I'm sure it's at one RPM. But um, that with the five-speed and whatever, it, they were sufficiently quick. My problem with the 113 is personality. Mm-hmm. They sound the same at low revs. It's just a Mercedes V8. But where the M119 has that variable valve change and suddenly wakes up and builds and builds and builds and builds, the M113 is a torque monster from idle to redline. Mm-hmm. That makes it quicker in the real world down low, but it takes away that that personality yes. that... Yeah. The fizz, the fizz, which is probably not something that most SL buyers would have cared about then, but, but the there people is who buy them now. Fun about a, a, you know a granddaddy's car like that that f- hikes up its skirt and fucking lights them up and goes. Yes, it is I the six point nine formula. It is the Bentley Turbo yep. R formula. It is a timeless formula mm-hmm. uh, for car enjoyment, which is yeah. something. It's it's a cue car kind of experience. Yeah. And every time I'm in a in a one thirteen car, I'm like, wow, this is quick. And every time I'm in a one nineteen SL. I laugh out loud. Laugh. I'm like, holy shit. And it's really funny that the subjective impressions is so different between two cars that have five liter V8s and the same ish horsepower, yep. whatever. But the 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 laugh factor is definitely there on the on the M one nineteen cars. Strange yeah. that the the number one nineteen is greater than the later one M yes, one thirteen. This is typical for Mercedes, Mercedes. just like OM six oh six versus OM six one seven for their right. diesel engines. Uh, and so, so yeah. there's there's varying uh, opinions about which one is the one to have. Um, are there? Yeah, a lot of people prefer the late cars. Late okay. cars are more valuable. An AMG pack M113 car is more valuable than a pre-facelift car. Okay, but when you say varying depart- uh, varying opinions, you're not talking about in this room, right? No, not in this room. God, okay. no. We, I think, are 100% aligned. So let's get this straight. If you are a Carmudgeon listener and you're looking at an R129 Mercedes-Benz SL, you are to buy an M119 powered car. No, an M119 powered car with LH. Fuel yes, protection. with LH, but pre-facelift in my opinion. I, I agree. So that leaves three model years, which are exactly the three model years that I'm always looking for when I'm looking for 119. I will not consider a, 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 an SL, an R129 SL that does not a 93, 94, or 95, 500. I'd be the same way. And I think the, the, the but facelift- But some people really want the five speed. Small sidebar, mm-hmm. if you want an AMG kit car, AMG kit was offered starting in 98 on, 98, 97, 97 on three models in Mercedes line. You could get the C280 Sport, you could get the E420 Sport, this is before the E55 arrived, mm-hmm. so it looks like an E55, but it's an E420 mm-hmm. with the AMG kit and monoblocks and stuff, or you could get it on the SL500. Maybe the 602, certainly the 500. And so you got the AMG body kit, which is handsome. I like it. It's, it's polarizing. Some people really dislike it. I don't mind it. You got the monoblocks. It's kind of this tuner car mm-hmm. look. And you still have the M119. You get the five-speed. And so some people will be like, give me a 98 or 99 AMG kit car with the M119 and a five-speed. That's an acceptable alternative an in acceptable my option. eyes if you're okay with the facelift interior. I mean, look, the, the, the facelift interior ruins the car for me because all the soberness of the original Saco yes. design There's is There's a gone. rationality and crispness that is replaced with 90s blobby. It, and and more so just gaudy cheapness. Yes. So a good friend of mine who's also a friend of yours has a late car and he's going to kill me for saying this, but it's it's like a bluish black. I don't remember exactly what the paint paint is with a- Some kind of Disegno thing. It's a Disegno paint with a red interior. Mm-hmm. And- it, I no, no. It just doesn't. To me, the SL was so sober and understated that tarting it up with ultimately cheap materials because yeah. they just don't age well. Because they were trying to save costs, just to right. be competitive. And and he wanted a late car, and then so interestingly enough, his mom wanted a an SL. So he found a 
four speed. I think it's a four speed. I don't remember if it's a four speed. Or, no, it's got to be a four speed because it's an M one nineteen car. Um, no, it's an they, early, or the late ones, right? But it's an early. Those were five speeds. When they did the facelift, they went to five speeds. Ninety six yeah, previous, so it's an early. He wanted his mom. He got his mom a green early pre facelift five hundred. I think and it's then, a post facelift. I I remember. You, fuck. I can't. Why can't I lie about anything in front of you? <clears throat> anyway, uh, anyway, it's a five speed. He got all right. One way or another, he got an he got an M one nineteen car for his mom. Bought mm -hmm. it super cheap. It's a twenty thousand mile car. Absolutely stunningly beautiful. And he loved it so much, but he wanted a one thirteen car because he wanted the late the late interior. And he didn't listen to me. And he bought it. And he loves the way it, the way it looks. Great. That's a personal taste issue. But every time he goes and drives his mom's car, he's like, I want an M119. Mm -hmm. There's the proof. If you're into the flash of the way the late cars look great, good for you, you're blind and those taillights are terrible and the front end is horrible and the fucking interior sucks. Sorry about your vision, but the 119 is the better drive. Sorry. Yeah. And then, well, and then so we have sort of not quite touched on why you don't want a 12-cylinder car. But in uh, essence, it's heavier, it's not faster. You get the 12-cylinder experience. You know, if we are to adhere to the to David E. Davis's perspective that everyone should own a 12-cylinder car. That's a good way to do That's it. A good way to Model do it. year is less material. Although, if I were to have a 12-cylinder car, you know, th there's a big difference between the way Germans do 12-cylinders and the way the Italians do 12-cylinders. Yeah. So, I mean, all you got to do is do the videos, uh, look for a video of a W140 or a W220 with equal length headers. And you know that's what the Italians would have done. So, we're going to have to do an insert here, but listen to what these engines could sound like yes. or could have. And, you know, now the way they really sound is they were horribly unequal length exhaust runner length and, and header lengths. And so they just sound like nothing. Yeah, the one SL600 that I drove had mufflers on it, but mm -hmm. nothing else. And it was, I was disappointed by the noise. It's just more volume, but not good noise. And I was really expecting, you have to do the headers in order to get yeah. the magic. Uh, it was it just looked, sort of like dull roaring and BMW, stuff. BMW did the same with the M70. and the, Well, it's a luxury those, car. Right. We have to remember the original mission of these cars was luxury. And so... You know what luxury means to me? Very quiet screaming. I mean, you know, it would be amazing to do that. But I, yeah, I would, choose over, I would choose a 500 over a 600 without question. I would choose a 500 over the 300, even the stick. Yeah. Um, the thing about same. that 300 SL stick, the dogleg, was, is they're not slow. They feel dog slow, but they, so you've been in my, my Mark one Volkswagen Cabriolet with a two liter 16 valve swap, right? This is a car that came with 90 horsepower and was slow and now has 170 and is not slow, makes all kinds of noise, vibration, screams, spins its tires. And would you describe that car as brisk and quick? Which the S cabby. The, yeah. I mean, it certainly feels like it. It's yeah. very exciting. It's very exciting. I raced the cabriolet and the sl and actually have a video that i did afterwards of the, the two speedometers that i can put right here they're the same speed and that was the craziest thing to me is this That's psychotic experience. Because yes. in the, the SL, you're like, is it on? Is it on? Is it turned on? Is it going? And that's the difference. It never pulls hard, but it continues to pull. That, that's got it's a very refined power delivery, which is exactly what you'd expect from a Mercedes-Benz. It sounds, sounds great. It does. It sounds a lot like a BMW S52 or something yeah. like that. Quiet. Which is quieter and all, yeah, and less grit, so smoother. Yes. Um, more airy, more of that. Yes. And, and uh, it revs really nicely. It pulls all the way to 7,000, which feels absurd to be driving a gigantic Mercedes living room. <laughs> and this exact powertrain was every single 24-valve, six-cylinder car that Mercedes offered at that time, which was which were numerous, had that same powertrain, the dogleg. Yeah. So you could get it in the W124 as well, not mm -hmm. in the US. You could get it in the S-Class. There was a dogleg S-Class with that engine. Yep. In it, Imagine which, how fucking slow that yeah, was. Yeah, really. <laughs> because that thing weighs as much as the sun. Uh, so, yeah, that was the way that Mercedes did 
powertrains back then. If you got if you got the twenty four valve you got engine, a dog leg. you got a dog leg yep. if it was a manual. And you never got. They did make the three. So they made a a, a three point two version. So the SL three hundred, which we didn't talk about, became or the three hundred SL became, became the SL three twenty. But that was never offered as a manual. It was never offered a manual. It, but also, it kept the five speed automatic and it got uh, variable intake length runners and LH. NLH and that only revved 6500 very different car again that and I do always, not like it was phased out I think after 97 or 98 uh, and for the US market and so mm-hmm. at the end of US production you could only get the 8 and the 12 meanwhile in Europe that was replaced by a V6 uh, yeah which is why I guess they didn't want to bring that here oh god thank god so, I'm sorry, a V6 and a Mercedes-Benz. There has never been an acceptable V6 in any Mercedes-Benz, possibly the 72-degree V6, the diesel. Hmm. I might accept the 72-degree V6 because it's 72 degrees, and who does that? And that's stupid and therefore cool. Well, that's what you're supposed to do in a V6, isn't 120. it? 60. 120. 60. So 120 is the proper, which now Ferrari and our, uh, McLaren are doing. 60 is the second substitute. 90 is never acceptable. 72 mm-hmm. is just dumb. And mm-hmm. 54, which GM did, is... and. Yeah, and therefore Alfa Romeo did is also stupid, therefore cool. Um, uh, yes, that, uh, and I digress. No V6 ever in any Mercedes. I don't care. There's not, 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 not allowed. Not, you know, the, the best or nothing, then it should have been nothing. Or, or, or nothing. Yeah. So or, my choice is or nothing? You're nothing. There is no choice. It's just nothing. No thank you, no V6. Um, so now that we've defined 500 SL as, a, as the right choice on... 129s mm-hmm. what are the problem is so this is really turning into a buyer's guide but it, i don't want it, <laughs> it to is. be a buyer's guide it's more like an informational thing 129 was the high point for let's back up for a second for the sl and here's why the 220 was a pile of shit um it was 230 i'm sorry 230 r230 was i, I that whole generation sort of revolves around the 220s class right yes the it was R230. the first full articulation of them cheaping out Cheaping the fuck out, right? And that included the W203 Mr. Peanut yes. headlight C-class yeah. um, and the W210 horribly ugly uh, E-class. Although there's a notable difference, like with the 202, when they facelifted the 202, so that's the C-class, first generation right. C-class, and when they facelifted the R129, they both got cheaper. Yeah. And then the same thing happened with the 210 E-class, the four headlight E-class, yeah. the first one. The, the early ones are nicer than the later ones. Right. Or yeah. less unnice less than the later, later ones. Yeah, I mean, look, I had a post-facelift W202 that was a C43 AMG, and that was mm-hmm. the only way. So pre-facelift was the C36, which is mm-hmm. a 3.6 liter straight six. Post-facelift was the C43, which is a 4.3 liter V8. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't have traded it for an early car. I didn't care that it was crappy inside because that fucking V8. I, I had the early car. I had the C36. And you kept and it for zero time, and I kept my v8 for a, a uh, lot the real reason that. why actually i kept it such a short time is that i bought a one owner thirty-three thousand mile car and i felt so bad about using it that i never drove it it was uh, signal red wasn't it it was imperial imperial red, red dark better, red yeah. uh and i was i do miss that car but i also know that i would have never driven it and so i actually went last weekend and looked at a, a black a black one a black oh, i keep sending 000. that link around it's not very good mm. no but, but i mean it's cheap it's so that that black c c36 that's on craigslist it's um the, it's got good bones and it was obviously well maintained, but the, the paint was redone and not well. Okay, that's the fundamental issue. Um, I've never driven a C thirty six. You never let me drive yours. You're mean. I I think you did drive I, it because you put it on scales. I have a photo of it on scales, and I wasn't there. You weighed it. I didn't drive it. How is that possible? Somebody else know. drove it to me. I don't know. Um, anyway, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a cool car. It's wonderful. It's yeah. actually possibly the best driving Mercedes of the nineties. This the my C forty three was spectacular because yeah. you know that the V eight was actually lighter than the six cylinder. Hmm. Okay. And better weight distribution because it's further back because it's only four cylinders long instead of six. So wins in every way. It except but the that interior the is C, garbage. Well, and that the C thirty six was actually quicker to sixty for some fucking god unknown reason. Anyway, hmm. gearing or something. I don't know. More importantly, SLs. All right. So I I really think one twenty nine is a high point because two thirty was just kind of cheap and inside, and I think it lost the simple elegance of the two uh, of the 129's design yes and everybody did this at the same time everybody did this at the same time by the way bmw did this at the same time it was it's just a shift of modern cars this is why everybody who's into radwood cars it's like things were different and better than i mean you see it in honda accords right right? the the honda accord the the one with the flip-up headlights that came out in 86 or whatever it was Mm -hmm. uh it has a really clean rational look to it and the generation right after it does and then things start to go a little blobby after that for everyone fair enough 
Uh, it's um, just a sign the, of the, the times. The 220, I don't think, advanced the SL. So the 129 was a huge advance in technology over the 107. Well, it should have been. It was <laughs> replacing it was something that had been around for 20 years. But it was the world's first fully automatic roof where yeah. you didn't have to pull yeah, the levers or anything. A, I am dealing with the pleasures of that at this very moment. We'll get to that in a second. So the roof was the world's first fully automatic convertible. It was the world's first seat-mounted uh, seat belts. Really? And it w- yep, those seats with are- magnesium frames. Magnesium frames, and all of that was done because they had all of these extra years to develop this car. And in their rollover tests, they thought, "How can we possibly protect people?" So it was also the world's first car with a full roll retractable roll, roll bar, right? That automatically popped up in a third of a second in, a, in an event of a rollover. So you had that, and then or you considerably had considerably longer if you're using the switch. Yeah, the switch moves it slowly, but it's, it's hydraulic. A, or, yes, yeah, but, but it's a ratchet. There's a, there's a ratchet thing. Yeah, it goes. <laughs> We know someone who has set it off in the course of motoring spiritedly. It happens. Um, but uh, so this was the idea was that in a rollover, you have the, the seatbelt is positioned as close as to your shoulder as possible, as close to your shoulder as possible. I speak good. Um, and would then with a very strong magnesium seat frame help you from being thrown out of the car. Um, Plus huge, the roll bar. Huge. And by the way, the hard top, which I think the 129 looks even better with a hard top on it than it does with soft top. I agree. Um, which is also really cool to put on because you place it on and you hit a button and the hydraulics pull it, pull it down becomes a structural member and so that car becomes even stiffer with the hardtop on it and, and more quieter. aerodynamic and more aerodynamic i think the coefficient of drag goes down by 0.02 i think it goes from like 0.34 to 0.32 or 0.32 to 30 or something like that. but it goes down by 0.02 i have a chart with, the- with all of the cds with every combination including the world's first ever Wind. Uh, wind deflector, yes, which also reduced the air, uh, the CD. I mean, the thing from a technological standpoint, and the hardtop was standard. It was. They all came with a hardtop, and no one wanted them. So you could delete the hardtop after. I think after a couple of model years, they oh really? They made it optional again. No one wanted hmm. them because uh, it weighs eighty pounds. Yeah, hundred pounds. It's unwieldy, and the way it's designed, the back corners right below, below behind the C pillars have these very sharp dicks that stick down and then are received into the car. And as you're putting it on, you invariably miss the hole and scratch the shit out of your paint. So mm. just a bad design should have been somehow other, otherwise, you know, secured. Um, but no rust issues on these cars. Robust chassis. Well, anything will have a rust if you, issue if you... Yeah, but you know, some, you know that some cars are notorious. Yes. Hondas in different yes, spots yes, yes. and other Mercedes like a W220... They rot from the inside out because they have water-based primer that cracks and allows water in. No wrist rust issues. No major mechanical issues. Mm, um, there are going to be people who will say, ah, but what about? Okay, so let's talk about it. What about roof? Wiring harness. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So first thing, roof. roof. Because this is all of them. Yes. So I win because it's a bigger issue. There okay. are 13, 12. There depends on the model year. There are twelve cylinders in the early cars, and they deleted the left oh. uh, locking cylinder for the tonneau cover, uh, starting in ninety six, I believe. Okay, so it's eleven or twelve. I knew there was it's an odd number or 12. there. <clears throat> and these hydraulic are cylinders, very high pressure hydraulic cylinders that are used to actuate the top me- mechanism. So you have a yes. pump. It's an electric pump that pressurizes the system. It is in the trunk under the spare, and it goes. Yeah. And the the sound of that thing when it locks is like a prison cell locking. Yes. <laughs> very, very Mercedes. Yes. But the cylinders leak. The cylinders do leak. Uh, and they are, there's a main, li- oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to describe what they all do. They're to make the top do various things, to make it lock, to make the tonneau cover open and shut uh, and lift the whole thing. And also. the cylinders from Mercedes, the last time I looked was 10 years ago, were over $500 a piece times 12 becomes a very expensive job. However, however, there is a place, there are probably more than one place, but there's a place that's well known called uh, Top Hydraulics that rebuilds the cylinders. Uh, if you send them to them, they're in Florence, Oregon. I and, mailed one this morning. And they're... 50 bucks, 100 bucks? It depends which one. Yeah. It's between, yeah, basically 45 to maybe 110, mm-hmm. which depending which cylinder it is. To do all of them, it's $700 yeah, not, to rebuild them. Not bad. To do all 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's that is an issue. Um, they, some the of them are a real bitch to get out. That's I have been awesome cursing issue. at them for weeks. So your car is currently in I'm surgery. I'm currently yeah. doing, yes, <laughs> a cylinderectomy. I got um, rid of mine long before I had to do that because fuck that. It's, it's not a 
ideal job. There's a lot of like fiddling and it's just accessibility is not great, but I am doing it myself. So okay. there's so that. there's that. You're also doing or you don't you don't so the wiring harness issue is an interesting one because one of the people who wanted to buy my SL, he was very, very interested, but his mechanic screamed at him and told him he cannot buy a three hundred SL because of the wiring harness issue. That is horseshit. Exactly. Your car is a CIS car and the CIS right. cars do not have the wiring harness issue. Right. The wiring harness issue came on the LH later cars, the three twenties, because during the cost-cutting era, also Mercedes caved to pressure from the Green Party in Germany and made recyclable, biodegradable wiring loom. So basically the, the yes. rubber on the wire. Which it began doing almost immediately. Self-recycling. So yes. yeah, so they short out, stuff doesn't work properly, you can have a fire. Yeah, so there um, are two harnesses. There's an upper harness and a lower harness. The upper harness controls like mostly engine functions and traction control and stuff like that. Uh, it's very easy to determine whether the harness has been done. There's a little sticker on the harness that's under the hood, and you lift up the little cover there and look at it, and you see the date. And if the date is like 1993, you're like, ah, fuck. If it's right. like 1999 and the car's a 93, you know, or 2007 or whatever, then you're like, okay, the har upper harness has been done. But there, so the the one of the harnesses is bigger and the, uh, smaller. It's just a the wiring room with a bunch of connectors on yes. it, and it's not a big job, right? No, it uh, it's an hour to get in and an hour to get out to do the lower one. I just did it on the E320. Right. So this is not, you know, this is like a problem area, but it's inexpensive-ish to address. I mean, it's certainly it. better than doing head bolts or rod bearings on certain other German cars. I don't like called BMWs. I mean, if all that start with M. Um, yes. Yeah, all you do is you unplug a bunch of connectors and replug in the new ones. You're done. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, cracking The upper engine. harness is available. Its price varies, but it's like $1,000-ish, maybe a little more. Uh, but they used to be cheaper. The lower mm -hmm. harness is NLA for the 320. I don't know what it is mm -hmm. for the other cars, but there's people out there who rebuild them. I'm sure there is. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Okay, 1000 bucks is more than I expected for the yeah. harness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whatever. It's a Mercedes Benz. Uh, <laughs> transmissions don't usually go? Yes, they do. They do not. Yes, they do. It's the same transmission that every other. 722, isn't it? Yeah, they always go between 80 and 120,000 miles. That's not been my experience. Yes, yeah, it's something that always this. looks. Everyone is always checking for these. They're like, "How long does it take to select reverse?" Is one of the go to te go to tests because there's a B two piston, which is the one that engages reverse, and eventually the seal fails and it can't build enough hydraulic pressure to get, engage reverse. You can and if you so rev the engine. If uh, <laughs> so, to build hydraulic pressure, yeah. So it, seeing how long it takes for the car to select reverse, but the, anyway, transmissions do go on these cars. Transmissions wear out to do the B two. You have to do the pistons all. Automatic transmissions wear out. They are a wear yes. item. So that's what I, I mean, it, like that would be like clutches are a problem. You have to do them every 100,000 miles. No, it's automatic transmissions never last forever. I'm going to get crucified in the comments for section. But there, yeah, someone's going to be like, I have a turbo hydromatic that is in my 1940 something in di dinosaur. Yeah, it powers my dinosaur with a turbo, turbo hydromatic. Let me put it this way. GM transmissions last forever. Chrysler transmissions don't make it to 60. <laughs> That's a gross exaggeration. Fords don't make it to 80 and Mercedes don't make it over 100 without wearing, right? So there was a 722.6 or whatever. One of the transmissions had a rear uh, bearing issue where there was a tiny little oil passage that would get plugged up and they would explode. You oh, put it in gear festive. and oh, that was the six speed though. I don't mm -hmm. think the five speeds ever had that problem. So anyway, the fair, robust engines, robust chassis, steering is a steering box. So they... They will wear out in time and get loose, but it's a wear item. It's not a, you know. I will say that the pleasure of these cars is, well, two things. When you drive them, they, you, you feel the sensation of mechanical quality. And when you work on them, you feel the sensation of mechanical quality, <laughs> which is that if you are, everything goes back together and clicks into place. It's mm -hmm. the opposite of working on like an Italian car. We're like, well, that seems tight enough. Like it feels like it's right about to break. So I'm going to stop turning. And I'm going to have to file and this. Mercedes, and Mercedes, yeah. yeah. Like it just, everything goes back together really beautifully. They were, they were, they're from Mercedes golden era where everything yes. was really engineered at no cost. Yes. Uh, there was, there you know, no regard to cost. Right. Um, at no cost. Uh, zero. Um, the other thing is the sporting nature. So the, the six cylinder stick shift cars are quite sporty. Yes, um, and by that I mean they huge amounts of body roll, huge nautical amounts of body roll. But yes. they they don't really understeer all that badly. A um, little bit, what you want, but you can, you can kick slide them out. it around. It's a hilarious experience, and mm -hmm. nobody expects that from that car. Yeah. And so it's uh, really uproarious to do that. It's great to watch. I yes. love watching a really well piloted 129, especially yes. a six cylinder on a back road. Yes, like we have a lot of experience it. doing that because yeah. we have a friend who is insane enough to try to do that, and he does. And he does. He keeps success. up with he keeps you know, up with anything car that we're rallies driving. And, yeah. 
uh, in the SL, which yeah. is great. And what he's a great way to motor. In the lap of luxury with yes. ice cold air conditioning and a good stereo, the late cars especially, really good stereos. Mm. The Bose um, stereo started mm-hmm. in, yeah, 94. Uh, but but optional seat heaters, even though it was $100,000 in a convertible in 1990. Just, yeah, for some reason, seat heaters just were not de rigueur at that point. And I think yes. we've just come to expect them from everything. Yes. Steering wheel heaters are that way now. Like every yes. car should have it. The cars are cheap also. That was the other thing. I wanted to sort of make yeah. a market commentary. It is criminal to me that an R107 costs more than an R129. Is it just um, scarcity? Oh, let me ask you this question. Is it, So we, we've talked a lot about scarcity, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of cars, if they a lot of them are produced they're just going to be less expensive to me. The only one Oh sevens that are truly worth a lot of money are the latest cars. Like an early two eighty stick shift. Fine. But a five sixty SL where they have, I would a, have host a 500, of a European Euro 500. Yeah. 500. So a, a late European 500 or us five sixty. They didn't make that many of them. Yeah, they did. They're freaking everywhere compared to one twenty nines. Yeah, I mean, the car was, they made a lot of 107s. So 107's best year was its last year, which is yeah. crazy. It, it outsold its previous year all the time, which is crazy for a car that was 20 years old at that point. Yeah. Um, but the market was sort of coming online and people were becoming more wealthy. And, and so that that explains the that. Was but it was always, at, it was also at its best. I think a 560 yes. is the best. 500s and 560, the latest cars are the best. You want a Euro 500 because the US cars have low compression and the US bumpers and US lights. Okay, the bumpers and lights. I, what I loved about the 560 was its torque monster, and it would just yeah. ignite the tires off the line. And they yes. weren't that fast; they were no. eight seconds to sixty, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 500s, you need to rev to get yeah. to get power out of. Um, so it's different character, whichever suits yourself. But my my thought is there can't be that many 500s and 560s truly desirable 107s, um, you know. And so th- even though it had a huge production run with enormous total number of produced, the 560s are expensive because they were the best. Yeah, you're right that the 129 is a much better car, vastly better car. I mean, the one the 107 had swing arm, the swing axle rear suspension. Pendelachse in German, yes. which basically means you're going to flip it and die. Uh, yeah, if you get into oversteer, it's going to get exciting. It's, it gets pretty hairy, and they do snap sideways very, very quickly. And you have the world's largest steering wheel, and your hand will hit both your legs and, and the, the dashboard and the windshield. So you're and you get bloody knuckles just trying to turn. Not a perfect car, um, but the only engineering problem I find with a 129 is there's not enough room for my foot. Mm. on the gas pedal every time i get into 129 there's two issues the drivers on the driver's side your my size 11 shoe is wedged in between the bottom of the dash and the top of the gas pedal which i think they fixed for the later cars i do not have this problem um fuck you and then the passenger side i always want the seat to go further back than it than it does every time i get in one i'm like God, but structurally unbelievably sound not a lot of yep. call shake yeah quiet yep fast it's a, um, it's a very high quality experience, mm-hmm. and so I think they're criminally underpriced. It has the it is peak Mercedes. I think they're aesthetically beautiful, but uh, you know it's nice that there are still some affordable cars out there, and it's obviously not going to appeal to someone who's like looking for an M3 to go terrorize back roads in, and it's it's not no, that type not, of car. It's not for that. Uh, but I swear by them. I'm a big fan. R230 was of of no interest to me. R231 was interesting because that became an all aluminium construction car. Uh, engineered like the Dickens and really moved the bar for that type of vehicle in terms of engineering. But it was mm. so ugly that no one cared. Mm. Uh, yes. Now the new one's out. I haven't driven the new one yet. I'm interested. Um, but I can't imagine. I don't I don't particularly like the 911-ish shape of the rear end. I don't like yeah. that AMG styling language. But yeah. um, uh, I'm sure it's very well engineered. And I love that it's coming as a V8 only, um, but all-wheel drive. And I just think, come on, you're moving further and further away from like the SL mission. And now it's just... F- uh, it's you know is it a an old man sports car or is it an amg like uh, whatever yeah. i don't get it i agree but i think so it is i mean my goal i don't know i hope to always at some point have an r129 i will probably the one i have i will probably sell and buy one in a more interesting color combination with lower miles at some point um but to me I, the regional reason why i bought this car uh is because uh i sold my 500e and i wanted basically the same content for less money mm-hmm. and that's the funny thing about it because this car costs more than an sl than a 500e new uh but they are a small fraction of the price and so if you want a 500e and you can't afford it consider an sl 500 mm-hmm. and uh, if you don't want a convertible put the hard top on it's a better car than anyway yeah yeah that is all very true so i you know budget 500e i, I mean if, if people are always getting feeling discouraged about the market then that's a place to look if you think you might like a V8 yeah. automatic thing, which is 
But I think yeah, I a think weird suggestion to Haggerty, make from Haggerty, enthusiasts. Yeah, but Haggerty UK nailed it. I mean, it's the one sort of non-enthusiast car that enthusiasts really love, right? Yeah. We're driving enthusiasts. We love to go haul ass on back roads, and yet we all kind of want a 129 yeah. for that for that cruise. Um, yeah, and I think that, I mean, I've always been, I've been waiting for them to go up in price just because it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to, although it would be nice when they start becoming valuable enough that people love them because inevitably you'll be buying one from someone who progressively Craigslisted it down market to someone who didn't know what it was and couldn't afford to keep it or look after it. I mean, because these cars generate big bills, especially if you're having Mercedes dealer do mm-hmm. the top cylinders, then you walk away with a, you know, a bill for three, four, five thousand dollars mm-hmm. uh, to do all that. And uh, so they ended up, you know, doing the same thing that every expensive car does where they sort of die, uh, or they are with dead people, uh, mm-hmm. or nearly dead people, right. uh, and those are the ones you want to try and find, although right. they might have some neglected maintenance. They, they, they've fees. done okay in value. They've definitely gone up they in have the last gone couple up. years. Yeah, they have. Um, but I still think it represents a really strong value for what it is. You can get a superb early car with 60,000, 70,000 miles for $10,000. The, uh, the best example that I can give is the current, or should I tell anyone who it is? So there's a guy who's a, currently in a very, very large position at a very, very large car magazine and really knows a lot of stuff. And his friend's dad bought a brand new uh, first year 129 and had like 250,000 miles on it or something. And this man has the financial means to have anything he wants. And we found a 20,000 mile, I think it was 20,000 mile identical copy of his car. And he paid an outrageous sum of money for this car given the market. I think it was a $40,000 or something. Um, he would have rather he would have paid the same amount of money for that car as he would have for a brand new. If it cost him two hundred thousand yeah. dollars, he would have done yeah. it because he found the SL that he wanted. And frankly, you could buy a new one for a hundred and whatever it is thousand dollars, or you can buy an R one twenty nine. And I'm convinced the one twenty nine. Yeah, if you could buy the best one in the world for forty thousand dollars, my God. Yeah, why would you not? Yeah, and he's it, the idea is now he's just he has the two side by side. Last I heard, um, and he will just drive them until the end of his life. And that is that is that's. The like many SL drivers do, because it is a perfect car for a 90-something-year-old car enthusiast, car mudgeon. Case in point. I may die at any moment, which means we should probably end this episode. Yeah. In, conclusion, in conclusion, give it Derek, some thought. it's over. Yes, my <laughs> life, perhaps. Bye.